Revelation 2. Last week, we uh, spent our time considering heavily the author of this revelation, Jesus Christ, the one who liveth and was dead and is alive forevermore, the one who has the keys of hell and death. And we considered also uh, the object of this letter, which are the seven churches, uh, signified in the text last week as seven candlesticks, uh, around whom Jesus was in the midst. This week, we step into the messages to the churches of Asia. And we mentioned before, and several times now, that these churches were not only churches in existence, uh, but, but they were certainly not the biggest. They were not the oldest. They were not even necessarily the most impactful. To this end, uh, it should perk our interest as to why these seven churches were chosen. And we will perhaps explore that a little bit um, as we walk through them and then focus in at the end in a message or two as to some of the opportunities to glean from the general concept of what these churches were and what that means for us. We'll talk more about that at the end of chapter 3. For now, I'd like us to explore each church individually. And I'm hoping that we don't necessarily go through it church by church as in seven weeks for the seven churches. However, to this point in my writing, that's kind of what it's looking like. So we'll just see how it goes. There's simply so much content to cover. And I don't want us to get bogged down, but I also don't want us to miss. And the reason why it's so important is because each of these churches forms somewhat of a microcosm for some of the, the, the... positive and negative aspects of church, of local assemblies. And it behooves us perhaps to find a church that we might most be like, but even more so to take all of the positive characteristics of the churches as they stand, and then all of the negative characteristics of the church as they stand, and to search our own hearts and to search our own body and to see if there might be anything in our church that needs correction. Likewise, to understand those areas where perhaps we relate to these churches uh, in Asia and then to affirm ourselves in these areas. With each church, our charge becomes clear that we are to determine whether we're living up to the commendations or whether we have fallen into the same propensities for which they are rebuked. Legacy Baptist Church is an extension of the body of Christ. Like the legacy of these seven churches which have gone before us, we exist as a candle, as a testimony to the world into which we have been placed. It is our privilege, it's our duty to shine as lights into this world. We carry on this legacy. We stand upon the shoulders of those who have gone before us. And then we move the light of that candle from this generation into the next generation. And this is not an arbitrary call. This is indeed not a minor thing. In fact, the very name of our church implies that we see the value in passing on the legacy of the faith from generation to generation. So this morning we learn of the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The Bible tells us in verse 1, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden 
candlesticks. Each church is going to begin with a salutation telling us unto whom the letter is written and by whom the letter is written. We know that the letter is written by Jesus Christ, but in each case, he's going to emphasize a little something different. Some of them will be things that we see from his introductory statement in Revelation chapter one, along with some other perspectives at times. We are also going to see uh, distinctions about unto whom the letter is written. We see, of course, first, that these letters are written unto the angel of the church. This is not to say that the message itself is to one person, that it's to the church, but rather that the message is given to one person. We talked about this in a little bit, uh, a little bit of the controversy surrounding this last week. Is the angel actually a spiritual angelic being or is it a messenger? We saw precedent as to why it could be that the angel is actually a, a person in the church, the messenger to the church. Uh, we also talked about some of the elements of what it would mean or the implications that if, if this were a spiritual spiritual being that was being written to, uh, some of the, the reasons why that seems a little bit uh, inconsistent with what we know of the scriptures and, and such, but it's really uh, somewhat of a neither here nor there as long as we recognize that the church is the one that is to receive this message. And Jesus is going to re- refer to the church as one entity. We'll see how we know this in just a moment. However, there will be times in various letters where we see the church go from a single entity to exhortations to the individuals in the church. And the text will make that very clear as well. So let's take a few moments uh, before we, we continue in the text to dig into the nature of the city unto whom this church ministered. And we have a unique privilege when we get to the first church here, the church of Ephesus, because this is one of the churches that we can find in the book of Acts, one of the churches whereby we can draw out some some more details than simply what we know from history. However, what we know from history is that Ephesus was a city near the western coast of the Aegean Sea in modern day Turkey. As a matter of fact, you see that all of the churches, all seven are in that same general area. It was a powerful city. It was an influential city. It was also one of the hubs of paganism in the Roman Empire. Greek tradition stated that Ephesus was the place where the mother goddess was born. Eventually, there would be a temple built. History tells us that it was a full 220 years in the making, this temple, to the pagan goddess Artemis, at least in the Greek tradition, Artemis. In the Roman tradition, her name was Diana. There's little left of this temple today. However, it is called in the history books one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the poet Antipater of Sidon who contributed to the seven ancient wonders and he wrote this of the temple of Artemis. I have set my eyes on the, lo- on the wall of lofty Babylon on which is a road for chariots and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus and the hanging gardens and the colossus of the sun and the huge labor of the high pyramids and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on aught so grand. What we understand here is that this temple was something to behold. It was a stronghold of the pagan world. It was not only a place of deep pagan worship, full of all of the evils that come with pagan worship, but it was also a place of culture. There was a museum at the Temple of Artemis 
where some of the most beautiful art from the ancient world was preserved. To this end, Ephesus became a hub of culture, a hub of commerce, due to the pilgrimages that were made to the temple. It's also a hub of crime due to the pilgrimages that were made to the temple. We might liken Ephesus to a modern-day New York or a modern-day Hollywood, some place that has a, a, a tremendous draw for tourism, and that tourism has defined the culture, a culture that was already pagan. We learn of Paul's time in Ephesus in Acts chapters 18 through 20. Initially, he landed there on his way to Jerusalem for a feast. He contended in the synagogue. They asked him to stay, which he could not do. So he left them and he told them that he would be back when he could. Uh, But he left his companions, Aquila and Priscilla, to remain in the city and disciple believers. While gone, there was a Jewish man named Apollos. And Apollos, he had been born in Alexandria, which is in Egypt, another uh, very academic place and, and and a pagan place. He was a very eloquent man, the scriptures tell us, in the Old Testament scriptures. He arrived in Ephesus and he started to preach the baptism of John. uh, And he was not familiar with Jesus. And Aquila and Priscilla uh, soon learned of him and and recognized that he knew only of the baptism of John. They spoke to him of Christ. Of course, the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. And so he accepted Christ as his savior. Uh, If he had truly accepted the baptism of John, then there is no question he would have accepted uh, the truths of Christ as they were one in the same truth. And then he became a mighty force for Christ in the city as well as beyond. As we learn of him in 1 Corinthians, uh, certainly he he had had an influence there in Corinth. Paul would return to Ephesus and continue his work there, disputing with philosophers, doing miracles, contending with the vagabond Jews and evil spirits alike. Acts chapter 19, verse 20 tells us that the word of God grew mightily in Ephesus and prevailed. It was a city wherein the gospel had taken hold. It was mighty, so much so that the Christians and Christianity began to affect the business of selling little Artemis idols. Because idolatry was such an important part, not just of the culture, but of the economy there, and idolatry was being snuffed out through the Christian influence, this deeply upset the businessmen, caused an uproar in the city. And it is with this background that we understand a little bit of the church under whom this is being written. Ephesus was a spiritual battleground. And we should take that understanding into what we know, uh, into what we read, excuse me, in Revelation chapter chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We fast forward now. We've said that John is writing this probably uh, 94, 95 AD. So we're 40 to 50 years past when Paul is in Ephesus and the church has been established there and the church has done mighty works, right? So we're talking uh, a full generation after that. We don't exactly know how the church has fared in full, but we're going to get a little idea of it from the text. We then see, as we'll see with each church, an introduction to the author, Before we move on to verse 2, Jesus presents himself here as the one who holds those seven stars, which were the angels of the seven churches in his right hand, and he who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He knows, in other words, what's going on. He is in their midst. He is a part of what they're doing. They're his churches, not just the churches. 
And so just as these letters are written to the messengers of the churches upon whom rests the responsibility to lead this flock, so too Jesus reminds them that he's the head of the body upon whom rests the responsibility to lead that body. And indeed, he dwells among them. So the text continues in verse 2. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and has found them liars. Jesus begins here with commendations. Now, I said a few moments ago, Jesus is going to refer to the church as one entity. We see this realized in verse 2 by the use of the singular pronouns, thee, thy, thou, instead of the plural pronouns, you, your, ye. We've talked about this many times, but it's worth repeating. One of the blessings of the King James Version of the Bible is that the King James shows us whether or not the pronoun, the second person pronoun, is singular or plural. So if the writer is writing to one person or one entity, he's going to use thee, thy, thou. If the pronoun is plural, speaking to a multitude of people, more than one person, then he's going to use you, ye, your. This is consistent throughout the entire Bible. And we'll see when we get to the church of Pergamos that he is going to change context from thee, thy, thou to you, your, ye within the same context. These keys, these little things are the things that can help us so much when we're attempting to interpret the word of God. And and we thank God that our King James translators saw fit to use those words for the sake of our comprehension and understanding. So he says here, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, an entity here, the church. And what does he tell them then? He tells them, I know. Each letter will begin with this statement. Jesus knows what's happening in his church. It's one of those funny things that sometimes um, we kind of get the feeling that um, Christ isn't watching, right? The, the feeling that uh, Christ doesn't care, maybe, what's going on, that we can get away with things. The idea here is, no, he knows. Christ knows what's going on. He's watching. And I say that in a negative sense, uh, just briefly here, right? That he doesn't care what's going on. But it's even more important because far be it from us to assume the church is is doing wrong. It's even more important for us that we understand that in a positive sense. Because as we labor, it can get tiring. As we seek to be faithful, there are many times in our lives where that faithfulness comes head to head with the frustration of, does God even care? Does God even know? He knows. He does know. So he says, I know. I know thy works. I know thy labor. I know thy patience. Within these three words, we find a description of the nature of both the ministry in Ephesus of the church, but also of the trials of the church of Ephesus. Theirs was work. A work that required great labor, a work that required great endurance, as we see that word patience there. Both of those words, labor and patience, are used here to describe the nature of the work that this body had to do. Theirs was not a harvest of ripe soil that could just be planted and then easily harvested. Theirs was a field of labor. Theirs was a field in great need of patience. Theirs was a field of vigilance. 
Theirs was a field where they had to battle against evil. Not every church needs their people equipped to combat evil on the front lines. There are churches that are in certain places where the front lines are much closer. Other churches, uh, they're a part of the supply line or they're in the back somewhere. Now, that doesn't mean we don't need to be ready to, to contend with evil, but not every church has the same calling, just like not each of us as individuals has the same calling. This church was on the front lines, and they were a people that were working hard, and they were a people of endurance. Now, I've alluded to it already, but we see the nature of their toil in the next two phrases. Thou canst not bear them which are evil. And then after it, thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. The first phrase would speak of the pagan culture around them. They were tirelessly devoted to resisting the evil of the pagan culture in which they lived. As with the worship of any goddess, uh, there would have been a great amount of sexual impurity, prostitution rampant in the temple complex. The city was teeming with evil. It was bolstered by the spiritual strongholds that were established there. Uh, There were some that God calls to contend with these sorts of things, and Ephesus was one of these churches. They had to contend with evil on the front lines. The second phrase tells us that they were also vigilant against infiltration. It wasn't just that they were, they were contending against the culture within which they lived, but they were vigilant against infiltration into their church of false doctrine. A church can contend against the evils which are around them, but if liars and imposters find their way into the church, that church is more or less doomed to failure. The church at Ephesus was a vigilant church. They were a careful church. When a man came claiming the authority of the apostles, they tested that man. They tried that man. They proved him with doctrine and they rooted out liars. Now, battles come with costs though, don't they? They wear you down. And we're going to see as we continue that while they had not fainted, they were going to be reaping the difficulties of the battle which they faced for some 50 years. Verse 3 says this, and hast borne, still speaking of the church, and hast patience. That same word there as in verse 2. And for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. So Jesus comes back to their labor. This was a working church. It echoes in slightly different terms the fact that they endured and labored very hard for the faith. They didn't give up. They didn't give in. They contended with culture from without. They kept themselves pure from within. And Jesus tells them, I know this, and I know the effort that it has taken for you to get here. They labored hard. The Lord was watching. The Lord has seen it. But in verse 4, we come to the rebuke. And he says this. He says, nevertheless, verse 4, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Nevertheless, Jesus says, there is something between you and me. That's the idea of the word there. In our King James, they supply, you notice that the the word somewhat is in italics. Whenever you see an italicized word in your King James Bibles, what you know is that that word was 
supplied by the translators. It's not, you cannot find a Greek word in the original text that corresponds to the word that was supplied. The King James translators generally did this for the sake of comprehension. That either because of the difficulties of translating from Greek to English and, and translating it properly, that they had to add some words for comprehension, or from time to time they add a word um, that they felt was uh, appropriate in order to to heighten the flavor. In this case, uh, we, we see they use the word somewhat. If we were to read this in the Greek literally, it would be, I have against thee. Uh, the somewhat that is put in by our King James translators softens the rebuke a little bit from what we might necessarily read in the text. But I don't know that we would say it is unfounded because as we look at the rebuke and as we look at how Jesus is, is working it out, it is a softened rebuke. This is not something that is, uh, he's not angry at, at this moment. He is warning them uh, of something that they are doing wrong. A sample idea here of how this word is used outside of this context, I have somewhat against thee, is found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 24. Uh, Jesus says this, Therefore, if I bring thy gifts to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. That phrase there, hath ought against thee, is the same Greek phrase, the same words, the same order as we see in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. So to this end, as we consider this phrase, the idea of the offense that you might have ought against a brother that would compel you to go and make it right before you bring your alms, before you bring uh, your gift to the altar, uh, is simply the idea that there's broken fellowship. It's not the idea that you two are uh, uh, enemies of each other or anything of the sort per se, but simply that if there's something between you and a brother, if there's broken fellowship between you and another, then get it right. That idea of broken fellowship is really what we're seeing here, that there is a breaking of fellowship. There's a distance that has been put between the church and Christ because they have left their first love. Now, that doesn't mean we should minimize this, but at the same time, I believe this somewhat is somewhat warranted. They left their first love. The first love of the Christian life is Christ. Christ is our Redeemer. And in those first days following our salvation, we see little more than Christ. 1 John 4 verse 19 tells us, we love Him because He first loved us. For some of you, the days, early days of your salvation might be a little farther away. For others, maybe it's quite close at hand. But in the days after your salvation, when you were made a new creation in Christ, you're growing, you're learning, you're rejoicing, you love much. For indeed, you know just what you've been saved from. The young ones among us, perhaps not experiencing that to the same degree, yet still receive within them the joy and the excitement of of becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but there's a temptation in the heart of every believer over time to allow that love to wane a little bit. And you think back to a different time in your life when your passion, your zeal, your excitement, your desire was greater than it is now. And you you say, why? What happened that the, the zeal and the outlook that I had on those days has changed? Well, We still know and appreciate the extent to which Jesus loved us and his sacrifice for us. But as with anything, 
the emotions begin to fade, life begins to invade, priorities begin to change, things come up. Where we were once motivated by Christ, perhaps we've begun in certain areas of our Christian life to be motivated by duty or obligation. Whereas once we found our hope in Christ, perhaps we at some point began to find our hope in success or in the tangible outworking of the Christian life. Whereas once we labored for Christ, maybe in some areas of your Christian life, you've begun to labor for labor. And to that extent, we lose our first love. It's not an uncommon temptation among those who are in the midst of spiritual battles in particular. When one is on the front lines of any battle, each day is about survival. It can be easy sometimes to forget why you fight. You've perhaps heard of wars uh, but, um, among certain people groups, tribalism and whatever the case may be, where they're in the second or the third generation of the war and the people that are fighting the war don't even know why, don't even know how it started. They don't know why they're fighting, but they're still fighting it just because it is what it is. And this is the warning here, that an embattled church like the church of Ephesus, who had gone through uh, great trials, who had, who had had to hold the fort in a way that maybe some other churches didn't, because the temple of Artemis was there, the temple of Diana, because of the idolatry, because the, the businessmen, the, the, uh, the economy, the economics, the, every element of the church or of, of culture, they were fighting back against the church. And so they had to harden themselves and steal themselves. Was there still a cause? Indeed, there was still a cause. Did everyone in the church still recognize the cause? Maybe some of them had not. In fact, most certainly some of them had lost the cause. Why? Because they'd left their first love. Their motivation for the battle was beginning to cease, was ceasing to be Christ and was perhaps becoming the battle itself. We fight the battle because this is the battle. Not we fight the battle because this is Christ. It can be easy sometimes to forget why we fight, why we labor. And the church at Ephesus had forgotten the Lord that inspired their labor, the Lord that inspired their purity, the Lord that inspired their contentions. So Jesus exhorts them in love in verse 5. Remember, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. The call is twofold. First, he says, remember. Remember where you have fallen from. Have you ever thought back to a time when you were more excited about Christ than you are now? Maybe you're busier now. Maybe you're more effective now. Maybe you aren't very excited now. A time when you were driven by love and now... You've got the formula down. You're about results. You're getting pretty good at what you're doing. You know when to stand. You know when to sit. You know when to go. You know when to not. You know when to say. You know when to don't. You know these things now. The formula is there and the zeal is lost. The passion is lost. The motivation is lost. He calls us to remember. And then second, he calls the church to repent. That word repent speaks of a change of mind and a heart Generally speaking, as we talk about repentance, we say it's a change of mind or of heart that compels a change of thought or of action. In this case, as he says, do the first works, we see a slight concept there of changing actions. And yet what we would recognize from the text is that by and large, their actions weren't the problem. It was the heart behind which the actions were being taken. They were still a pure church. 
They were still a church that was contending. However, the heart with which they were doing it had changed. The motivation had changed. Turn back and do the first works, the works of their first love. They were laboring, they were enduring, but Jesus calls them to revise their labor to look more like the first days, more like the Acts 19, the Acts 20 days. To come back to their zeal, to come back to their urgency, to come back to their first love. And then Jesus leaves them with a warning, one which will follow with each church that is rebuked, because not every church is rebuked. That if they do not repent, Jesus will come upon them quickly and will remove their candlestick. Now remember our context. Remember what this candlestick is. This is not a warning about losing their salvation. This is a warning about losing their testimony. Light shines into darkness. Ephesus was a great darkness and the church had shined as a light. But as their efforts switched in their motivation from love to something else, As Christ ceased to be the center of their efforts and their efforts were for effort's sake, they failed to have the power they needed to sustain that testimony. And if they failed to put Christ back at the center of their love and of their motivation, their light would be snuffed out. They would cease to have the testimony that they wanted and that Christ wanted them to have within the city. They would no longer be effective at contending against the darkness. Now, with many of the churches, the warning gives way to a promise of blessing to the overcomers. But in the case of Ephesus, there's one more thing Jesus desires to tell them. Normally, at this point, Jesus would give a promise to overcomers. But instead, he begins by saying this in verse 6. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus gives them one more commendation. Not sure why it's broken up the way it is here. It's not based upon shared love, but shared hatred. Whereas they were initially motivated by love of Christ to contend against evil, now they were motivated by some other factor. They lost their first love. But there was one thing which they still had a very pure motivation, and not for, but against, and that was the Nicolaitans. To this end, Jesus commends them and says, you share my rejection of this heresy. Now, the Nicolaitans were a heretical sect in the early church. We don't know much about them outside of church tradition. Church tradition states that this sect was actually named after one of the seven deacons that had been appointed by the apostles in the church at Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, we read this. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. That would be waiting of tables, right? The deacon's work. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So take note that these men were men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and of wisdom. One of them, according to church tradition, Nicholas of Antioch, faltered at some point or taught something that was then at some later point perverted and twisted to become heresy. And they named themselves after this first man, Nicholas. Now, again, I'm not saying this was the Nicholas. Church tradition says it is. The Bible does not tell us this. But, and because of that, I'm not going to say a whole lot about it. And and we'll also get more into it when we get to Pergamos. But it is not uncommon, is it, for a man uh, of good understanding, 
who is full of wisdom and of the Holy Ghost, as he continues in his ministry to at some point get caught up in something or change his focus in some way, and it derails his ministry, or his focus gets placed on a certain area, and it's not wrong, but then his followers take it to unhealthy ends, and it becomes a problem to the church. This is why the church needs to be in a constant state of inspection and renewal, because even those who in one generation have taught rightly, the next generation might take what he said, pull it out of balance, and, and cause things to become something that they ought not be. We move on to verse 7, our final verse for this morning before we apply. Jesus says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. If you have ears to hear, Jesus says, hear. When the Bible tells you to hear, that doesn't just mean that you're knowing what words are coming out means that you're allowing those words to take root in your life. It's a call to listen, to consider words with gravity and sincerity. Now, John calls us here to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And notice the broadening here. He has been speaking to the church of Ephesus. He's been using thou. He's been speaking to them as an entity. And now he's broadening his perspective to hear what the Spirit says into the churches. The fact that we are broadening to the churches tells us that he is divorcing this message, verse 7, from that which came before. That this is a compulsion to other readers, not just to the individual church that's being read here. The promise is not just to the overcomers of that church, nor is it a promise to the church as an entity, but to the individuals that will read this text. So he says, he that hath an ear, let him hear. He's given a message of knowledge and of commendation and of rebuke and a call to repentance and the Spirit of God calls all who will read these pages to consider themselves and to see where they relate and how they relate to these words. The reason why I believe this is important, that we make this distinguishment, is because oftentimes, and depending on who you talk to, they closely link the overcoming promise in each passage to the church itself, saying that the church, the overcomers of each church will be given this tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, which we'll talk about in a moment. But I don't believe that that's the flavor of what's actually being promised here. And in order to understand it properly, this context shift, I'd like us to first understand what the word overcome means. The word in the Greek means to conquer, to prevail, Ironically, it's the word nikao, which I only give you because it's the word from which the name Nicholas came from, and Nicolaitans were the ones that were of particular um, negative character in this promise or in this passage. What we see here is that these words are not words of warning, but they're words of promise. They're not intended to make those reading fear. They're intended to give those that are reading hope. John wrote in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He wrote in 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5, For whatsoever is born of God, oh, yes, uh, overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is 
the Son of God. Now remember, it's the same Spirit who compels that they overcome. That they overcome the world. And they that overcome the world are they who have believed in the name of the Son of God. To this end, I do not believe that what Paul or what, what John is giving here and Jesus uh, by proxy of John's writing, I do not believe that what Jesus is giving here is actually a warning to them that they're not overcomers and that they need to overcome. I believe instead that what he's giving here is a promise, a reminder of hope. And I believe at the end of each of these churches is a reminder of hope that as they hear the commendations and as they hear the rebukes and they're called to repent, and then as we, some 2,000 years later, are reading these commendations and reading these rebukes and reading of the, the trials and the tribulations and even broadening our minds to think of the church at large and all of the struggles that the church is going through right now in Syria and all of the struggles that the church is going through right now in Vietnam and all of the struggles the church is going through in North Korea and in China. And as we read these things, and you can, uh, in, in the Philippines, and as you read of, of the reports of struggles and trials and martyrs, there is a hope at the end of each one of these that they who hear, the ones who do hear, right? Because those that have an ear to hear are those who are believers, those who are in the Spirit, that those who are overcomers, he's reminding them that there's a day of joy and of rest and of peace coming. Keep doing what you're doing because rest is coming. Keep up the good work. Correct yourself where you need to be corrected because there's a day of joy at hand. In other words, I don't know if you've ever had a big project to do or perhaps with my children. My children have a, a, a reward coming and we tell them in order to receive this reward, you have to continue in your good behavior or you have a big project coming and you've been putting a lot into this project and you can see the end and the end is there and when you're there, you'll be able to rest and when you're there, things will be better. And so you look at your children and you say, you're almost there. Just keep up the good work and you correct them what they're doing wrong and you commend them for what you're doing right and then the motivation for correcting what is wrong and for keeping up the good work when they're tired and they don't want to do it anymore is the fact that there is hope on the horizon, that there's a reward to be had. That's so important. It's so important for the human heart to see the end and to say there is a reason why I'm doing this. I believe that's what the end of each one of these is. It's not a warning. It's not Jesus holding over their heads. If you don't overcome, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to strip the paradise of God from you. No paradise for you. It's instead paradise. It's coming. You're an overcomer. Keep it up. Don't get tired. Don't get weary. Repent. Do the first works. Get it right. There's a reason why. It's worth it. It's that soldier who's been over there fighting the battle and he's tired and he doesn't know why he's fighting anymore, but at least he has the picture of his family. I'm coming home to that. It's worth it. That's the idea here. And if you are an overcomer, and it is yours to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God, then live like it. Then, then, then stand up and, and live it. Then remember your first love. Then, then reorient yourself. Contend for the faith. Keep working because rest and joy are coming. You are the ones that have overcome the world. So don't lose heart. 
in your labors. And this will give way this morning to our application. Two points with several subpoints beneath each. I'm going to give them to you all at one time. We're not going to walk through them individually in that way. Point number one, exhortation to us. How, how do we learn from these churches? What do we learn from Ephesus this morning? As a body of believers, as individuals, as families, as a body of believers. Well, number one, folks, let's do the work. Let's contend against evil. Let's guard against error. And let's be steadfast. Let's do the work. There is evil in this world, and the church is called to be a light within it. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce-breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. I give you, I skip a little bit. Paul says, but they shall proceed no further for their folly shall be manifest unto all, all men as theirs also was. Evil will be here until Christ comes. While Christ tarries, the question becomes, does evil reside in the recesses or does it walk with boldness? We are not called by God anywhere in the Bible to crusade against evil in a physical, violent way. This is the job, according to Romans 14, of the government, not the church, to crusade against evil in a physical way. Where the church resides is in the proclamation of truth. Romans 13, excuse me. The proclamation of truth, the battle over ideas. To labor in the world through laboring in the word and in truth. And what that means is that the church must know the truth. The church must love the truth and the church must not, the church must not be ashamed of the truth. Now today's church at large, is not the church of Ephesus. We are not a church at large that has been well contending against the, the, the air, well keeping themselves pure, and is tired in their labors. Today's church is not a church laboring hard for the truth that is simply lost focus. That's not, that's not the church at large, at least in the Western world today. But this call is still important for each of us as believers because we are in a society that is ever increasing in evil, the, a society where the evil is now come out of the shadows and is emboldened and is sweeping through culture. We're in a society where evil is not just tolerated, but it's celebrated, where evil is becoming enshrined in law and where soon it might very well be enshrined in law that, that good might be attacked by law itself. We're in a society where believers have yielded to the vulgar and the perverse, where family is disdained, where decency is disdained. For many, materialism is God. For others, government is God. We're in a society that is morally backward and much of the church has ceased to contend against evil and instead has become very comfortable with evil. 
Christ commended the church of Ephesus for their contentions against evil. And the call to us this morning is that we would be among them, doing the work, not being weary, contending for the light, holding the line against evil. Don't just allow it to find its way into your life and into your family. We must not. We cannot. We cannot allow darkness to dim our light. It isn't easy to stand and to seek that which is right amidst those who don't want to do what's right. It isn't easy to be willing to stand for a truth in a society of error, but but this is our call, that we would not be weary in living for truth. What does it look like? Well, where others choose pleasures, you choose God. Where others choose lies, you choose truth. Where others choose death, you choose life. Where others choose convenience, you choose obedience. And with whatever platform you have, you live it. You exemplify it, unashamed. And you have answers when people ask you why. This is our call. We have liberty in Christ to live in this world and to use this world without abusing this world. We talked about it this morning in 1 Corinthians in our Sunday school hour. But we are called to contend for righteousness. We are called to live a life of distinction. So Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 6, we talked about it this morning, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 12. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Here it is. And such were some of you. But, I love that, ye are washed, ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any, save Christ alone. Such were some of you. You were once that person that walked in the lust of your own flesh. You were once that person that looked upon his own things. You were once that person who lived by the dictates of your own desires, but now you are something different in Christ. Now you are washed. Now you are sanctified. Now you are justified. So live like it. Live like it. All things are lawful, but you know, all things are not expedient. All the while, we guard against error. If error makes it into the church, we will crumble from the inside out. Beyond just ignoring evil, when men and women walk among the church who condone evil, rationalize evil, who take the hearts and minds of God's people off of the truth and onto something else, some other ideology, moral ideology even, noble ends even. If the purity of the church is not maintained in the church, if at once we begin to rationalize evil, if at once it's allowed to remain and fester and prosper, you can know that apostasy is not far away and that that light that we hold in Buffalo, Minnesota will soon be snuffed out. We might still be here doing our thing, But will there be a light? Or will it just be another shade of darkness? So 2 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2 warns us, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious, that word meaning destructive, ways. 
by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. The way of truth is evil spoken of by reason of those who claim to represent the light but actually represent darkness. When at once false teachers find their way into the church and they gain credibility in the church, when they bring in their damnable heresies into the church and they encourage evil, denying the Lord, denying biblical truth, confusing sound doctrine, it not only tears the church up from the inside out, causes division and strife, but it paints a target on the church from the outside that gives them reason to speak evil against the truth of God. So much of the New Testament roots its instructions in these very things. And so much the more because... It happens in the church. We need to guard against it. It does not become a child of God to root himself in the same evil as the world. And to this end, I know I'm giving you a lot of scripture, but Paul says this in Romans chapter 6, verses 19 through 23. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh, because we're weak, because we're sinful. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? What fruit was there in in those sins? What fruit is there, Christian, in those sins? What fruit is there in that gossip? What fruit is there in that anger? What fruit is there in that backbiting? What fruit is there in that unforgiveness? What's the fruit? What does it bear? This This is such were some of you. But even so now, with the same fervor that you once served sin, pour yourself into righteousness. Paul says, for the end of those things is death, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Have you ever noticed that that verse that we often and most regularly use to give the gospel is actually found written to believers about how they live in the faith? The wages of sin is death, Christian. Destruction, separation from God. We're not talking about hell. We're not talking about hellfire to the Christian. We're talking about a lack of testimony. We're talking about lack of fellowship with God. We're talking about the Spirit of God unable to flow through you. Now it's fine. You can use that verse to evangelize. Don't think you can't. Because the wages of sin is death. (laughs) One way or another. But just know that this verse is written in the context of believers who are to reckon themselves dead indeed to sin, but alive indeed to Christ. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, we read this. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temples of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. This is our charge, that we overcome evil. We contend for righteousness, that we live it, that we love it, that we maintain purity and distinction in this world. And this is something that Ephesus, in the midst of the great evil that had surrounded them, had done very well. They had held the faith. They had maintained their distinctives. They had fought against evil. They had kept, they had tried those that claimed to be apostles and found them lacking that were not. And they needed to do it well because they were surrounded by evil. They were on the front lines. 
But what they had failed to do is maintain the proper motivation. And this will become our second point in just a moment. I'm going to skip this last passage and we'll just go right to our second point. Let us keep our first love. There is a difference, believer, between doing the work and keeping your first love, between what you do and why you do it. Oftentimes when I pray at the beginning of the service, I pray that we're not just doing the right things, but that we do it with a heart that is right before the Lord. And it's the same concept that it's important for us that we don't just do the work, but that we do it properly adjusted. It's so easy for us to get our minds off of Christ, isn't it? It's easy for us in the battle sense to gain an us versus them mentality. Is it not? Where I look at the people on the other side of the fence, whether it's the unbeliever or the, the, um, the politician or whatever it might be, and say they are the enemy. And we forget that Christ called us to see them as the mission field. That we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world. That that's our enemy. And so we take our minds off of Christ and we do the work, but we do it because we're thinking of the person on the other side that we want to fight against and we have to win. And we've lost our first love. Because we're not just fighting to win. Christ wins. We fight to please Christ. It's easy for us to get so invested into a system of operation that we begin to operate off muscle memory in the church. We begin to operate off muscle memory, not just in the church, but in the church, right? In our lives. Everything becomes muscle memory. And we lose our compulsion to serve Christ out of a pure heart and faith unfeigned. And when we do so, we lose perspective and we can lose our testimony. We lose our edge. Our light in the world diminishes as we leave the motivation of salvation and redemption of love for the one who loved us and we place our love on something else. So we who are busy ministering, you know ministry is a blessing. Anybody who has given themselves to ministry in any capacity knows that there is a blessing to ministry, that ministry is a blessing. But ministry isn't the blessing. The blessing is the privilege of serving the one who loved you and died for you. Ministry is the means by which you do that, and there's a blessing involved. I hope you find church a blessing, that you come here on a Sunday and you learn and you grow and you fellowship and these things, and I hope you find church a blessing. But that isn't the blessing, the learning and the growing. The blessing is the privilege of knowing better the one who loved you and died for you. I hope you've experienced the natural joys and the benefits of an obedient life. There are tremendous blessings to be found in morality and in obedience, but the blessing is the opportunity to reflect the character of the one who died for us and loves us. Are you still rooted in Christ? Or have your motivations been changed? Now you fight for what you believe because it's what you believe rather than because you believe you're standing up for the one who loves you and gave himself for you. That you're doing what you're doing or not doing what you're doing simply because it's what you're doing or not doing and you've seen the benefits or whatever the case may be, but it's not because of the living Christ who is within you and compelling you and because of your love for him. See, it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. 
But perhaps you've left your first love. And oftentimes, the way that this works itself out in churches like ours is that we lose, in the first generation, we lose our first love. In the second generation, our children lose the works. Because the, first, the, the works without the first love become empty, lifeless, powerless. And the thing that keeps our children, that validates to them the truths of this book, is the power of God as we live it out. Have you lost your first love? Have we as a church left our first love? If so, if you can think back to that time when you were motivated by Christ where now you're motivated by something else, remember and repent. Turn back. Turn your heart back unto that time. Readjust your heart because that is where true blessing lies. If we as God's people fail to do so, the warning is this, we'll lose our testimony for Christ. The church at Ephesus, it was a busy church. It was a strong church. It was a contending church. It was an enduring church. Let us be busy as well. Strong, enduring, contending. But the church at Ephesus had left his, its first love and so was in danger of losing its light. Let us search our own hearts, lest we be guilty of the same. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.